listening to the Ivy Entrepreneurship Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. My name is Eric Morris, and I will be your host for this episode. All right. So with that, I really want to get uh, directly into our panel. Uh, so these are all three just fantastically successful entrepreneurs and, and frankly, pretty nice people. Uh, and that's why they're here today, really. <laughs> uh, I've been fortunate to have a, a relationship with each of them over the years. And uh, I wanted them to be here to be able to tell their story about, about growth. Uh, and each of them has gone through periods of high growth, through periods of stagnation, through periods of perhaps even setback. And so what I hope that we'll have a chance to hear a little bit today is their story, some of the successes, some of the mistakes that they've made along the way, and uh, then give you guys a chance to, to just ask some questions. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with Anton and uh, just let you tell your story uh, about Spinmaster. Well, morning. Nice to see everyone. Uh, you know, Spinmaster, what very few people know is started from just unbelievably humble beginnings. Um, every, everything you look at the company from the early days, you know, we had no, when we started the company, there was no seed capital, private equity, VC, nothing. We just started... We started the company with a little bit of money that we had made from a university business called Campus Faces, and uh, we started with our own, you know, with seven, eight thousand dollars, our credit cards, piss and vinegar, you know, and uh, and we started with just a huge amount of pa- uh, passion and tenacity and a whatever it takes attitude. But uh, you know, the company, um, I mean, the phone used to ring at my desk. But so when we started the company, the uh, the first concept that came to us was Earth Buddy. It was a grass head, like the chia pet. So what happened was my partner's uh, my partner Renan, the co-founder, his grandmother came from Israel, and she kind of smuggled. She was like in her late eighties, and she opened up this this purse, and she's like. And she pulls out the sawdust and, and grass seed. And, and then she had this article from the Tel Aviv newspaper. It was like the whole spread of the inside and how the, the uh, grass head, the earth buddy, had become a pet rock in Israel. So what we did is we took it and we went into my partner's gra- uh, uh, kitchen, his mother's kitchen, and we literally took like a beaker. We took the, all this cooking stuff and we started to reverse engineer it. Like... Uh, how much grass seed, sawdust, nylon. And then I, when we drove in our car to Kmart at Baby Village, at that time there was a Kmart right on the side there, and my grandmother used to live across the road. And, and, we, uh, and we went and we bought all of the hosiery at the Kmart, everything. And we were sitting there at the counter, and the lady's like, what are you doing? <laughs> so it's just important to, uh, to understand that Every part about Spinmaster in the early days was incredibly humble. And we, we really, you know, there's a late professor from Western, uh, I think uh, David Burgoyne. Yeah. yeah, and he said, growth hides a multitude of sins, All right? And, uh, and we were a great example of that. You know, when you're growing a lot, uh, it covers up mistakes in the company. And I think that's one of the most important things to, to remember today. And when, and uh, we're actually having a bit of that right now because uh, we go through different cycles as an organization. 
But we made, like, one of the questions was what mistakes. <laughs> we made every mistake. There's no mistake we haven't made. It's just some of them are larger than others. But, uh, you know, for us, our story is about uh, this unique, three individuals, kind of like a, a rock band. We would never be here if it wasn't for each other. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for my partners. They wouldn't be sitting there if it wasn't, you know. So it's that story where the three of us are as opposite as you can imagine, right? And that's the magic of the company, is how we, you know, we come to the table with such different mastery or skill sets or unique ability, whatever you want to call it. And um, Spin Master, at the end of the day, is about, uh, it started, I mean, now, now it's different. We're in a totally different stage, and what drives, what drives success today is really different. So we have 2,000 employees in 29 countries, and uh, you know, most very very little of our sales are in Canada. It's most it's a it's a global company. I mean, we are public, but I try to not think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was interviewing a board candidate yesterday, this this lady in the states, and uh, and she's like, "So tell me how the company's changed since you've gone public." And I'm like, "Well, actually, I tried. I do my best to not let anyone think we're a public." Because I want to make sure that the spirit, the values of the organization, and uh, I want to make sure that decisions are made with a long-term focus. Because the problem with com- uh, public companies is that they have a short-term lens. So I'm always like the bad person trying to uh, really make sure that the company, uh, the entrepreneur spirit, and all the values are kept at the forefront, and that we operate the same way as if we were. I mean, obviously, the finance department's different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a that's a nice transition point. I want to come back and talk about values in just a minute, Anton. So why don't we go to Debbie? And Debbie, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your story. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great story. I'm not sure if you guys can hear me, but um, our family is a fan of Spin Master. Um, Thank and you. Again, Hachimos lives in her family. <laughs> but let me just get my mic on. I'm not sure if I have this right. Is that okay? Can you guys hear? Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. So um, I'm Debbie. I'm the co-founder of Yoga Tree Studios here in Toronto. Um, my story, it's also a very humble story. Uh, I'm not a public traded company. Um, I'm a very local story. Um, I founded a studio 13 years ago with my husband. Uh, at the age of 24, we both graduated from University of Waterloo. Uh, we both secured a full-time position. I myself was also a buyer at Canadian Tire. Um, for the longest time, I think, uh, you know, graduating, ready for a full career, there was a part in us that thought that, you know, if we were to carry this through our our life, is that the right direction? So what we did, we did an eat, pray, love. We actually took a leave of absence, left the company, and uh, went to India. So my husband, Jason, who is also the co-founder of Yoga Tree, he went to Mysore, India. If you guys all know yoga, uh, he did his training in Ashtanga, classical hatha, and I went to northern India, Jaipur, to study Ayurvedic medicine. So uh, that was a six-month journey. And at that time, we're, we, we weren't really thinking about finances. We weren't thinking about how to get the capital to, to build a yoga studio. We just really wanted to immerse ourselves in, in yoga. And that was our goal. Uh, coming back to Toronto, we then thought, hey, you know what? We've already made it this far. Uh, Jason got his teacher training certification. I'm uh, training Ayurvedic medicine. We need to do something about this. And that was the day that we decided to find our first lease. Um, in our industry, especially in the retail industry, uh, there's two things that really would make or break a retail. 
Number one is the uh, retail rent. Number two is payroll. Um, and we learned it very hard in the early days uh, with very minimal experience that if we don't refine these two items, which we can talk about the mistakes afterwards, you're screwed, especially margins in retail now, especially in storefront, it's getting more challenging. So in 2007, we opened a first studio in Thorn Hill at the corner of uh, Center, Center Street in Dufferin. It was hard, I think. Uh, we didn't know uh, the demographic that well. We offered free yoga the whole day. It was a holiday, um, and no one came. Uh, it, it was Hanukkah, and no one came. And we were wondering, hey, we offer yoga. There's only 11 people, counting myself and Jason. We sat into classes. It doesn't look empty. What are we going to do? We have to pay rent. We have to pay our payroll. So then we thought, you know what? If we don't make it in a month, we're, we're, we're not going to be here. Let's offer the whole month free. So the whole month of January 2007, anyone comes in, no flyer needed, no tags or strings attached, you get free yoga. Um, a month in, um, I don't know how that happened, sales started coming in, we make sure that our prices were reasonable, we make sure that the offerings continue to say the quality was, uh, and uh, that carries through in our second month, third month, fourth month, and mem memberships were starting to trickle in. Um, in 2008, we signed up for a second lease in Richmond Hill. Um, what we noticed was that the class offering, we were able to diversify. Unlike other studios at that time, 2007, the yoga industry in Toronto, um, they were very segregated in, in, in a few different styles. Either you're in Bikram, either in Moksha, either you're in Downward Dog and you're focused in Ashtanga, but that's about it. Um, the values of Yoga Tree, the, the difference between Yoga Tree was that we very much valued the uh, the diversity of classes, meaning we offer heated classes, non-heated classes, restorative, we can go on and on. But um, fast forward, um, you know, to 2011, 2013, 2015, we were aggressive in growing our market into the downtown core. One thing we noticed is that um, if we continue to stay at the capacity we're in, in, in uptown, we would never be able to operate uh, in the efficiency and the synergy that we want it to be. So um, 2015 was the year that we opened our very uh, first flagship at the heart of um, Bay and Dundas. It's a 10,000 square feet studio. Um, at that time, uh, we became one of the largest studio in Toronto, but at the same time, we also make sure that uh, we stay relevant to our community. Um, it was also a time uh, in our growth period that we decided to take a break in our growth. Uh, between 2007 and 2015, we continue to sign leases, continue to find new locations, continue to be at the very core center of the highest traffic counts in Toronto. But 2015 took a break because we realized uh, that we needed to make sure we refine our system. So how many studios do you have now? We currently have five. And uh, this year, since 2015, we are ready to open our sixth studio. Uh, 2020, it should have been 2019, 2020 would be a very exciting year for us. Um, we have studio opening at the corner of Bloor and Avenue. Uh, it's at 121 Bloor, and we're excited about the opportunity. Fabulous. So, Thanks, that's story. Thank you. Eric. Yes, sir. You're the youngest company up here. Tell us a little bit about your story. Um, well, it's a nice, nice match we have. We have toys, yoga, and tequila. Love. Yeah. What more does the world need? I figured if that wouldn't fill the room, nothing yeah. would, really. Um, so I think I was in the first entrepreneurship class. Yeah. So it's, you, you did very well at instilling a bug in me that, that, that never left. <laughs> You're blaming me. Yeah, some, some days I do blame you. I curse your name. Um, so I, uh, you know, my entrepreneurship story, I went down to Mexico on exchange with Ivy back in 2005. Most of my smart friends went to Hong Kong or France or Switzerland. I went to Guadalajara, Mexico. 
And I did so because I wanted a new experience. I wanted to meet new people. I wanted a little bit of a kick in the ass. And, you know, who's, you know, to be quite honest, I also wanted some nice, nice weather and a, and a good time as well. And um, found something unexpected, actually. When I was down there, I ended up falling in love with tequila. So I had that Western, typical Western experience of tequila being that terrible shot at that horrible bar at that CD hour of the night. I ended up trying good tequila for the first time and said, wow, this is incredible. It's like drinking a, a scotch, cognac, fine wine. Came back to, um, to Canada, worked a, worked a day job in finance for about six years, spent a, spent a year in, in the UK, but had, had that bug in me about, uh, about, about tequila. And I noticed that there was a gap in the marketplace, so, and it's, which still exists today. Tequila is very top and bottom heavy. It's either close your eyes, plug your nose, hope for the best shot, which is based on price, or the on your chest, look how much money I'm spending type product, which is more about you know, uh, showing off versus, versus substance in the bottle. And there had to be a middle ground. There had to be something that was ultra premium, accessible, uh, but at the same time uh, spoke to a demographic that cared about not just what the brand is and how much it costs, but where does it come from, who makes it, and what's the pedigree behind. So the problem is I'm not a great Mexican. I'm not a great Mexican pedigree, in case you, you can't tell. Um, better to be lucky than smart, which is you know, sometimes a theme. Uh, a good friend of mine on exchange happened to be a guy named Rodrigo Sedano. Rodrigo's father is Marco Sedano. Marco Sedano was the original master distiller of little tequila brand you may have heard of called Don Julio Tequila. Mm. Yeah, yeah, a lot of smiley faces in the audience. Um, so we said, why don't we pitch Marco to be our master distiller to create this new brand drama? We have no idea what we're doing. It's like asking Wayne Gretzky to play in your men's league team. He's going to tell us to bugger off, but we'll ask him anyway. And so we did. And, uh, and he said to our utter surprise, he said, listen, guys, I'll do it on two conditions. And believe me, I'm oversimplifying this conversation. I'll do it on, number one, uh, i got to have a piece of this company. This has got to be uh, distiller-owned, much like it's you know, Canadian-owned. And I had an Australian partner as well, Australian-owned. Um, because I worked for, for uh, Don Julio for 17 years, and all I got was a watch for my service. A nice watch, but a watch. It was later robbed at gunpoint in Mexico, but that's another that's a <laughs> Um The second thing is no gringos in the kitchen. So he said, my entire life, uh, I've had people over, you know, look over my shoulder and tell me how to produce tequila that don't know what they're doing. Uh, that's not happening here. Okay, we're, we're certainly not going to give you input on how to, how to make how to make tequila, and so uh, much to my mother's dismay, I quit a very good job in, in, in asset management, um, partnered with the, the Sedano family, and we started making trauma. And very humble beginnings for, for all three of us, because effectively, you know, no one would give us give us a dime back then. If I went into an institution's office and asked for some money for premium tequila in 2012, I would have been laughed out the door. Uh, so after our first production, or after our first fundraise, which I was friends and family, I call it pity money. Um, we ended up having about, about ten to fifteen grand left in marketing, and so effectively, the only way to do it was to grab a backpack, take our bottles, and go bar by bar, bar by bar, bottle by bottle, and sell Tromba, and you know, tell the story over and over and over again. And from that, uh, we built Tromba to the number two premium tequila in Canada, number one in Toronto, number two in Australia, number one in Melbourne. And now we're in the fastest growing in the U.S. And this year we were named uh, in the top ten uh, trending tequilas globally by uh, the IWSR, which is the uh, kind of the spirits bible based out of London, U.K. So if anybody tells you organic grassroots doesn't work, I'm, I'm here to tell you 
it does with, with a lot of pain when it does. <laughs> we have three grassroots companies here, yeah. which is yeah. uh, which is really cool. You know, one one thing that doesn't get talked about uh, very often, I think, when we talk about high growth companies is is values, and. Uh, Having had the really wonderful opportunity to work with so many high growth companies, I, I, I find that it's actually central to a lot of them. And I know Anton and I have had this conversation. I'm not sure that, that we've had this conversation, but um, you know, they shape the way you make decisions and about the opportunities you go after and the partners that you take on, uh, but so many other things that happen within an organization. And so I've, I've asked each of them to talk just a little bit about the values uh, that they use or that they've taken into the organization uh, as they've grown. Yeah. Well, I think we should just step back on the whole values topics and put a little bit of context. Is you know, Firstly, for me, um, every topic... Uh, depending on the phase of Spinmaster, it's a, it's different, right? Because we've gone through so many phases as a company. So when you when you think about the values for Spinmaster in the first ten years, really it was just about living the values, and uh, because you're touching everyone, and everyone is watching. Uh, you know, you don't have to hang up any values on the walls. You don't have to talk about the values. You just live them. Yeah. When when you're in a startup phase. Um, now, Spinmaster, you know, having 29 countries, you know, and you know, the scale of the organization is different. Is values is very different at a company our size, and it's 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 really a uh, an ongoing challenge uh, to keep values front and center and to keep people living the values. Um, it really takes a lot of work, and and I got to put a lot of time into it. And in the early days, I never put any time into it. Again, I was just living the values. So, first of all, I'll just list some of our values, but then I'll kind of share with you some of the things that I'm learning today on how to keep the values front and center. So, our values are integrity, innovation, entrepreneurial spirit, open mindset, partnerships, driving results, and collaboration. So, when you, when you think about values in a company like Spinmaster, um, a, cu- a couple things come to mind. One is, as a leader of an organization, no day goes by where I don't meet with people on the front line and I ask them this question. Are there any impediments or barriers to you living your values when you're working during the day? Because I, what I want to do, what my role is, is to understand, okay, where are people having trouble living the values? Like, say, for example, someone says to me in supply chain, well, I'm having trouble being entrepreneurial because there's too much bureaucracy or someone says to me in Mexico, I'm having trouble with integrity because you know, things are done differently here. So my, my role is to really, to constantly under, to pulse check the organization, right? And um, one of the things that I learned from one of our board members, Ed Clark, who's, uh, who's one of the wisest men I've ever met in my life, is you know, when an organization gets to the size that we are, is that you've got to continuously pulse check the organization, and you can do it with easy surveys, right? And so I think even for you, uh, you guys should think about how do you, uh, anonymous, how do you get feedback, this feedback loop on where are you and your values? Because, like, for example, collaboration 10 years ago at Spinmaster was higher. It's dipped in the last year. So, so now through now I can kind of probe and ask questions. You know, where are the tension points on the collaboration of the organization? Um, but it's, 
you, you know, when it comes to values at a company our size, it comes down to, you know, hiring people to match your values, rewarding people to match your values, having, you know, clear rewards and recognition. I mean, it's the whole textbook thing of values. It's real and it's live. It's been mastered. But at the end of the day, values start at the top. And uh, people need to see, you know, you're living the values. I mean, one of the values which has really uh, been a game changer for Spin Master is partnerships. So if you look at any of our hits or big franchises, and for example, Bakugan, which we did over a billion in sales, just wholesale, that's not even including like the T-shirts or the underwear or, or the backpacks or, <laughs> you know, the toothpaste or anything like that. But um, when nine years ago when we launched Bakugan, the story of Bakugan was an inventor came to my partners and brings this like little this piece of paper with they had this metal ball and it didn't even function properly and 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 and, and it was just this raw idea from this inventor in the states Shelley and uh, the guys looked at it and and they're like what happens if we go to Japan and find someone who can help us with the mechanism because it wasn't because Bakugan what you do is you know, what Bakugan is, it, it's a TV show where the TV show is made in Japan. It's Japanese anime, which boys in that age group love Japanese anime, kind of like Pokemon and Transformers and all that. So um, the whole story of Bakugan is basically an inventor comes, shows us a concept. We take the concept, which is very early and raw. We then take it to Japan. We have Sega help us with the engineering on the mechanism. Then we have a, TP, a company called TPM or T. Uh, they did the animation, can't remember, the, and, and then we had Chorus, Nelvana, they helped us with the broadcasting. So what we did is we created a partnership where we said every single toy that sold or any merchandise that sold, there's a 12% revenue that comes into a pool. And of that pool of 12%, the inventor gets a certain percentage, Sega gets a certain percentage, Chorus, Nelvana gets a certain percentage, uh, the Japanese anime company gets a certain percentage and Spin Master gets a percentage. So we created this like global partnership where each person was playing to their strengths. Um, and Spin Master would never be where we were today if it wasn't for partnerships. And our company is, is littered with history of partnerships. Um, Paw Patrol is a partnership with an inventor in the UK named Keith Chapman and uh, Nickelodeon is a partner uh, with us. But uh, we, we're constantly sourcing the world for people who are the, are the best at what they do in certain areas, in certain verticals, and partnering with them. I should, I should point out, Anton, that that, uh, that sounded really easy, uh, but it really turned the, the business model in the industry on its head. And I think you guys deserve, uh, you know, obviously a lot of credit uh, for, for doing that. And it's been amazing how you've been able to, uh, to partner with so many different players in that industry. I mean, I'll just conclude on the topic of values is um, values is uh, it gets really challenging when you're dealing with so many cultures and so many offices um, of our 2,000 employees there's only 650 of them in Toronto and um, and you have all these subcultures right um, so it's uh, there's no day that I, I spend more. If you would have asked me 15 years ago, if you would have said to me, "Oh, you're going to spend time, you know, X percentage of your day on values," I'd be like, "What?" Right? And uh, and it's just so critical right now. And uh, we got to constantly have a feedback loop, measuring how how we're doing. And 
and things change. And people, I'll, I'll give you an interesting thing. We did, you know, it's humbling how, you know, you got to always keep asking your employees. We found out about a year ago that people were confused about the value partnerships. They're like, how do, how do I, working in Bratislava, Slovakia, how does partnerships tie into my role when I'm working in supply chain? And I'm like, well, actually, partnerships is an external value, not an internal value. And we hadn't even made that delineation clear a year ago. So now we've gone out to the company worldwide and we said, hey, of all of our values, um, there's only one which is very externally facing, which is partnerships. And if you work in the legal department, make sure that if you're working on a contract for Bakugan, right, that how it affects you is we want you to make sure that they feel like once the contract's signed, they feel happy. Right? And, and we're not just grinding them on small points, and we're not being unreasonable, and we want people to feel good afterwards. So partnerships has an application to certain departments in our company, but it's more an external-facing value. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Antoine. Yeah. Uh, Debbie, anything you want to add? Um, so for us at Yoga Tree, um, we have three values, and, uh, you know, and these three values really uh, ingrain in what we do and what we're about at Yoga Tree. So our values are community, uh, we have five studios in Toronto, and each of them operate in very different community. We have a Richmond Hill and Vaughan, which is more of a kind of suburban community, but we also have our downtown core, which Richmond Spadina, Bay Dundas, and also Young and Egg. Um, when we talk about community, uh, we echo that in the things that we do and also how our um, staff translate that in their own way. For example, um, community means that uh, to us, it means that, for example, what we value in, what we um, have in our members in the community. For, um, long story short, I think community to us, uh, especially in our downtown market, for example, we allow our staff and empower them to basically operate in what they want to do. Sorry, let me just get this right. Yeah, so um, for us, I think, you know, we talk about values, we talk about community, we talk about empowerment, we talk about um, diversity. Um, we, in the early days, a lot of times as an entrepreneur, we do a lot of things ourselves. Um, the hardest part for me was to let go and let our staff determine what it means to them and what they want to do. So um, I think the biggest challenge for an entrepreneur like myself, who in the early days uh, started the company between myself and my husband, then we also grew a family same time in 2015 and 2016, was how can we stay relevant to our community but also allow us to let go and delegate some of the work. Um, we, over time, had to also reflect on the values to make sure that, yes, it's relevant to us, but is it relevant to the staff who, who comes in every day and lives and breathes yoga tree? Um, and that was a time where we allowed our staff to really did a whole powwow session. We actually got a third party to come in, CMC, Canadian Management System, to really reflect, yes, in the early days, we came up with the values ourselves, but it was also a time for us to really reflect to see if these values were still relevant. And I think going back to Anton, what he was saying, yes, in the early days of startup, these are the values, and you go through cycles. And we definitely went through our cycles. We definitely went through um, our growing pains where um, the starter of the company's values were no longer relevant to, to what it was. Um, so now we still have a core values, but these values are translated in the meaning that our staff also interprets. And they also have to live and breathe what they believe these values are. 
Um, so community is one to us, community in the sense that, again, we operate in these different uh, markets, but we also allow them to pick and choose what they want in class offering. For example, Young and Egg and Richmond's Sedina, we have more of a millennial demographic. We offer classes like Flow in the Six. Uh, we offer classes like Hit Yoga. Uptown in a suburban market, we allow our management to select classes that are more geared towards a suburban market. That includes prenatal classes, family yoga, and kids yoga. Um, last but not least, we also very value uh, diversity. Diversity uh, not just in uh, the people we employ, the people we work with, but diversity in the sense that the class offering needs to be diverse. Uh, class offering diversity means that uh, it should be accessible to majority of people. It should be accessible in the sense that uh, I have arthritis, I have hip replacement, I have scoliosis. Uh, the range of product, the range of classes needs to be accessible and needs to be diverse. So those are our three values. Yeah, some, some really really interesting uh, interesting points and and you know on that culture thing, the what's what's important in Mexico sometimes isn't as important as it is in Canada, and it took us a while to realize without you know both from a profitability standpoint or, or a production standpoint, but also from not banging your head against the wall too many times that you have to adjust for the cultural aspects. And you deal with so many more different cultures than I do, um, but Mexico is you know we have ten people down in Mexico and. It is challenging. It is challenging. Um, for us, we you know we have a few really key uh, key values: think and act differently. Um, collaboration is a big one for us. Empowerment and and outlove your customer. So, in terms of you know for us on the collaboration side, if you ever sit in one of our meetings, we really try to foster a, a no bullshit approach where it's a free flow of ideas. So, in the sense that you know. You'll, if you sit in a call with the U.S., for example, you'll have the part-time ambassador in, in Washington State telling our U.S. head of sales that he's wrong and here's why. And the U.S. head of sales doesn't get upset about that, doesn't get offended because it limits the free flows of ideas. And as a result of setting up a structure like that and encouraging people to have such input, they feel uh, empowered. And some of the best ideas we've ever had for Tromba have not come from creative agencies. They have not come from quote-unquote, you know, C-suite executives. They've come, from, they've come from people on the ground on our team. And one of the other elements we have on the empowerment side is we really believe in a decentralized uh, organizational structure. So the traditional structure in the, in the liquor world, at least, is it's a very top-down control from headquarters. Here's what you do. Here are your marching orders, and here's how, here's, here's how to do it. That's not the way we operate at all. We have very small regional teams with leaders that have huge empowerment to make decisions. We, I put a ton of trust in these guys, in these guys and girls. And um, I should say men and ladies. Uh, and, and really, um, these guys are tasked with a ton of responsibility to execute quickly. And if they worked at a large company like a Diageo or Pernod Ricard, it would take them 10 to 15 years to reach this milestone, this level of responsibility. But with Tromba, if they show success, will empower them really quickly, two, three years. And I'm a big believer, I think it's an old, uh, maybe an old uh, patent quote that says, uh, don't tell people uh, how to do things, tell them what to do, and they'll, surpri they'll surprise you with their ingenuity. And I'm a true believer in that. And the, the old structure of, of, of top-down, I think, is, is not the way to go. The structure of fast, uh, fluid, nonlinear, uh, where you trade an element of chaos but you gain such mobility and such execution that you're able to effectively outmaneuver your, your competitors. Um, 
think and act differently. So one of the things, one of the challenges we have when we started a brand uh, where we're so story reliant and so brand reliant versus product reliant uh, is, you know, we thought, well, let's mimic what works for another company, their story, and adjust it to ours. If we did that, we would have been dead a long time ago. The world, you know, as crazy as it sounds, the world does not need another tequila brand. Okay? Um, so if I went and told a story, kind of, you know, built a better mousetrap uh, on an existing story, it wouldn't resonate. So for us, we had to effectively, you know, really be different. If you look at, you know, if you read biographies or, or look at other things that are, you know, in terms of history, a lot of the key pieces of, of you know, of ways people succeed is to be different and carve, carve that path. And being different also means standing for something, having, uh, you know, having a belief within your sales team. So you turn those salespeople into, uh, into storytellers, you turn your, your employees into preachers, and I can tell you every single one of our employees at Trauma could walk across the street for a significant wage increase, but they don't. And one of the reasons is because they truly believe in what the brand stands for. And the last thing is, uh, is outloving your customers. We certainly don't have, we certainly can't outspend our competitors, so we have to effectively outlove our customer base. And I'm a big, big believer of goodwill. I'll spend sometimes, you know, if a transaction is going to give me a $200 value, I'll spend $500 to keep that customer happy. Because I think that goodwill is going to accrue and that relationship is going to build and it's going to turn, you know, it's not going to be a $300 gain, it's going to be a $3,000 gain. And it doesn't always work and it's demoralizing sometimes when you do something for, you know, for a customer and they don't recognize it. But overall, it's been been a massive success. So if somebody, and in the past this has happened, I've gotten calls at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night saying, Eric, we ran out of Tromba. It doesn't happen anymore. Eric, we ran out of Tromba. Can you deliver an emergency case? Yep, I'm going to go to my garage, and I'm going to, my wife's like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? I'm like, no, nope, got to keep this customer happy. And I didn't charge a customer anything for it, but I went to my garage, put it in my car, drove down to the bar, dropped off a case. Maybe I had a drink. And then, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and then came back. And there was no monetary gain from that. And sometimes it didn't even add to anything, but I would say that overall it was one of the, it instilled that culture. And I think that, that lead from the front is a big thing too. If I'm, if I'm going to ask my team to do something, I have to be prepared to do it myself. Absolutely. You know, values really underpin culture, and culture is such an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to growing a successful company. Uh, you know, one, uh, Don Bell, who was one of the founders at WestJet, uh, told me a long time ago, he says, Eric, it's so much easier to build and nurture a culture than it is to come in and try and change it. Hmm. And uh, that's something that's always kind of resonated with me when, when we talk about this topic. And it sounds like you guys are all doing a good job of, of building and nurturing uh, that culture and how important it is even... Even when you're do better. famously successful. <laughs> uh, I'm going to skip around just a little bit. I'll, let's talk about mistakes. You know, We've all made mistakes. Uh, Anton, tell us you know, one that comes to mind or your biggest or however you want to frame it. Well, firstly, just um, silly, uh, silly, silly fun fact when it comes to alcohol that I was, uh, I was, when I was traveling, I mentioned to someone that I've never been drunk in my whole life. So people, when we were out for dinner in Slovakia and I told some of the staff that and they were like, seriously? And then even my kids are like, yeah, no, I've never been drunk. So anyways, it's just in, uh, some, some uh, frivolous, not important uh, I'll fun tell you, fact there. I'll tell you something else, which may be a bit more important, but still frivolous. Um, <laughs> if you drink tequila, and only tequila for the entire night and hydrate well, you will have no hangover the next day. Yeah. In fact, I challenge you all. <laughs> Wait, this isn't business at all. <laughs> Right, so, you know, as I said before, I mean, we've made every type of mistake. We really have. And, uh, you know, 
I think that um, if, if, there's a couple of really big things that I wish we did earlier in our cycle. Like, for example, having an operating president. For, for so many years, for 15, 17, 18 years, we had this co-president you know, co and the company, the company would have run better if we would have brought in a, uh, the right type of operating president earlier. Because my partner and I, we, there was a lot of friction um, when it came to the day-to-day, -day, like even silly things like the executive SNOP cycle, ordering inventory. Uh, the smallest things, even how we would run a meeting would be different. We're totally aligned when it, when it comes to building the companies, the values, the strategy, putting truth on the table, radical transparency. We have great conversations. They're tiring, but they're very, very strategic, and, uh, and we really challenge each other in a great way. But I think that the, the whole company would have been better if we would have brought in a global president earlier. Uh, you know, and I, there's a lot of reasons why. So I think that's one mistake. The other mistake is um, if we would have had someone who really, who could, um, the whole talent side of the business, I was, I was uh, telling you how we've you know, hired this lady, Tara Deacon, who um, who's, was the chair of the Talent Association for the World. And she, uh, Tara just joined us from TD Bank. She was, uh, she was the head of talent for 168,000 employees. And then before that, she was in Citibank in, in, uh, in the US, ran talent for, I think, 300,000 employees. But more importantly is, more importantly is, you know, how, you know, the depth and the thoroughness and the quality of how she assesses talent and um, how to grow talent, how to even the talk about talent, frame the conversation of talent. So, you know, Spinmaster would be a much stronger company if we would have had a chief talent officer earlier at the level that we have uh, earlier in our career. And, and that, that's huge. I mean, I, I, you know, I could literally spend the whole morning talking about talent. Yeah. And you kind of alluded to it. And, uh, and especially, you know, we're, we're living in a world today that the, everything's changed. We're, we're, it's, the reality is you can go on LinkedIn and say, Spinmaster, head of anything. <coughs> and you go on LinkedIn, you can see the name of the person. You just send them an email, say, hi, I'm Debbie. Would you, you know come for a free yoga and then let's talk about your career. <laughs> so uh, we're in a war of talent. If you're in downtown Toronto, that's the reality, right? Uh, everything's changed. I mean, 20 years ago, it would be okay if you had an attrition rate. Uh, you know, you'd be good if you're 6, 7, 8%. Now you're good if you're below 12%, right? So it's just, you know, and, and loyalty is different right now, right? Everything's changed when it comes to millennials and talent and people's expectations, the flex work hours. So uh, I wish, you know, that's one of the mistakes we've made. Um, I think also we, um, something I haven't shared before is I think that Spinmaster, uh, we would have taken a lot of grind out if early in the stage, if all three founders had full psychological assessments, okay? And there was a complete uh, transparency in each founder's blind spots, inherent bi bias, and the way they brain, their brain processed. And I, th I, I, there are no business schools that say this, but the 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 faster you put self awareness and truth on the table about the leaders of the organization and say, hey, this is my blind spot, this is my inherent bias, this is how I process information, then 
you know, everyone can get into their lanes quicker and you take out so much grind, yeah. right? And um, that was a huge mistake that, that we made, probably costing me a lot of my life, yeah. right? Because of the, you know, uh, because it's such a serious topic. Um, I think that right now we're in a world today where I'm a huge believer in all psychological tools. You know, my kids at the age of nine had full psychological, qualitative and quantitative, proactively. All three of my girls got tested just in a proactive way. Um, I'm a big, big believer in um, all the, you know, there's so many incredible tools for psychological profiles. And I think you've got to profile yourself and share it with everyone else. Because why, why, come, to the, why come to work and trying to do things that you think you're good at and you're not good at, and then, you stand, and then you're creating friction and tension points throughout the organization. You know, everyone should just get into their unique ability yeah. and you know, turn, turn your day into your art and your hobby and create magic. Yeah, self-awareness is so important, and, yeah. and the truth is uh, we have varying degrees of recognizing it. <coughs> yeah, I just say on, on the topic of self-awareness, wherever I talk in the world, whether it's internal or external, it always comes back to self-awareness. And I did a talk on YouTube, on, uh, I did a, tech to- a TED Talk about eight, nine years ago, and it was to 14, 15-year-old students on self-awareness, so it was really dumbed down. It was like a TEDx, it was at the Ontario Science Museum, but uh, I can't say enough about self-awareness. And the way you become self-aware is you've got to do 360s, you've got to ask people that you work with uh, and say to them, okay, I want to ask you some questions, you don't need to an answer, I'm just going to write it down, I'm not judging you. What can you count on me, what can't you count on me for? You know, what am I, you know, you have to ask people questions you work with, do a 360, do psychological profiling, you know, and you need to be obsessed with inviting feedback, right, uh, when it comes to self-awareness. It's, uh, self-awareness is a journey. And it, whatever your self-awareness is today, you can still heighten it. Because self-awareness is an ongoing journey until you die. Thanks, Anton. Debbie, biggest mistake? Jeez, I think every entrepreneur has their own blind spots. When you're traveling at, you know, 120, 130, you tend to miss things. Uh, Reflecting back, there's two things that I find, and one of them is continuous learning. Hiring the wrong people. I think on resumes, you might find the best yogis with a passion. uh, They are influencers. They present, you know, they teach them the most wonderful classes. Um, Having the passion in industry does not translate to doing things well. And we learn it the hard way. We hire them on from you know, early on as an instructor, um, having the passion, having the drive, uh, doing the classes right, uh, and doing the classes well, and transferring them over to management team because they also say that they have that passion drive and, and the ability to do that task well. Um, but it's a totally different skill set. I find that in different, um, you know, in, in our operation, uh, and that's why I kept myself and my husband's role very separate. My husband leads and trains all the teachers at Yoga Tree. He's responsible for the curriculum. I myself, I myself actually don't teach. And we made that very clear 13 years ago to make sure that we don't step on each other's toes. Being in business uh, and in personal life together, uh, it's very hard for us to make sure that we um, continue to have the respect for each other uh, and continue to stay married uh, 19 years after. But also, most importantly, I think you have to carve out that piece right. Um, hiring, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we have is that uh, we take our time to hire, but we don't take the time to fire fast. 
Um, and it's harder to let go of someone that you really have a connection with, that you have that um, passion, you know, together we developed that at Yoga Tree. But how do you make sure that it was time to let go, that you can do it fast and serious? Um, and we, we, we had a challenges with that. And as an entrepreneur, you often don't see that in your blind spot and you often don't see that coming until it's too late, until it becomes toxic, until it becomes something that's much bigger than the role and, and, and become a bit more than what, you know, the damage that they're capable to do. Um, second thing I find, um, I had the biggest mistake and I still regret it today, is that uh, in 2016, uh, Yoga Tree, as I mentioned to you, uh, opened our flagship in 2015, Bathe and Das, and I told you that we stopped growing. But in 2016, we made a decision actually, which I haven't disclosed to you, to buy a piece of land. Um, we bought a piece of land in East Wallenberry, and our goal was to really uh, spin Yoga Tree into something else. And I think um, at that time, we were experiencing quite rapid growth. Uh, we were steady. But I think, uh, reflecting back to it, we were growing too fast and too much outside what <coughs> our, our, um, our strength was. Um, in, well, in East Wollenberry, our thought at that time was to buy a piece of land. We're going to be offering a retreat center. We're going to be offering a wellness center. Um, and it was an investment that um, at that time, I'm not sure you guys are in real estate, but remembering 2016, uh, real estate was pretty much at its peak, both in residential and commercial. Um, we at that time purchased that piece of land, but little did we know, um, that piece of land, although it was zoned as commercial, it was actually a residential piece of land. So we learned the hard way, you know, being a entrepreneur, you can operate business well, but being a landowner, being, you know, now a whole new, you know, side of business that you never explore, there's multiple challenges. Um, we went through a lot of uh, legal hurdles. We had to obviously go through, you know, a debate between us and the seller, you know, what, what happened, how come it's not commercial, how come it's residential, how come this place can never be uh, deemed as a commercial space to be uh, zoned and built out as a commercial space. Long story short, we lost um, half of our deposit. We came to agreement, um, but also a big lesson for us was that um, continue doing what you do. I mean, continue doing what you're good at. Um, you can deviate, you can grow, but also stepping back to make sure that you know what you what you have. Um, you're you're solid in your foundation, but recognizing that again, these blind spots. Had I you know done my research more? Had I done you know a zoning variance? Had I hired a planner? Had I hired a consultant? Perhaps I could have avoided that, regardless of what the uh, you know realtor listing says. Yeah, you know it's a it's a really common mistake. Oh, great! Right. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're starting you're starting up your business and you're trying to partner with everybody, and mm -hmm. everyone says, "Who are you again?" You know, and it's really hard to find those partners. But as you start getting success, more and more people start knocking on your door, saying, "Hey, wouldn't you like to do this? Wouldn't you like to do that?" And keeping the focus on you know what's been successful becomes harder and harder and harder as as you become successful. It's so it's one of those uh, kind of conundrums there. You know, Eric, uh, w mistakes. You, know, you hear all the cliches, but they're true. You learn more from your losses than your wins. You know, I'm a tennis player and I play tennis tournaments for fun. And once you lose a match, I spend more time thinking about, was it my fitness? Did I eat right? Did I eat the right amount before? You know, was it strategy? Was it tactics? You know, did I, did I sleep? Did I this? And then you're like, and then you're making notes after your loss. You win a match and you're like, great. And you get on to the next thing, right? But I think that when it comes to mistakes, um, it's so important that you keep them front and center and visible. And what we've done is our office is just here. I just walked over here. Uh, our brand new office is uh, uh, beside Roy Thompson. 
outside of my office, uh, we hung the products that were big mistakes and we wrote the lessons on it. And they're on the walls outside my office. Right? So as you walk from my office down to the master boardroom yeah. in the hall, you see us hanging up our mistakes. So one of the things I recommend is to make sure that your mistakes are shared with everyone and that they're visible so that you, uh, so that you don't make them again and that you know, everyone continue to learn from it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, uh, I think Ray Dahlia, you know, in his book on principles, you know, you know, he talks a lot about mistakes and, yeah. and uh, learning from mistakes and the power. And I think those are the inflection points where you can, it helps you. The mistakes are, are mo- sometimes the mistakes are moments mm-hmm. where they're testing, they're testing the entrepreneur and the leader about their inflection moments, testing you about, are you, do you really think you can get to the next level? And what got you here won't get you there. Mm -hmm. And it's challenging you to get on the balcony, reflect, rethink strategy, rethink people, rethink process, rethink systems, and to make some serious changes and to have that edge, okay, to make the tough decisions to get ready for the next stage of your business. Right? It's a big read, but it's a good read. Uh, difference between mistake and failure, and that's why I'm purposely using mistake, is that a mistake only becomes a failure if you don't learn from it. And so take the opportunity to, to learn from those mistakes, and, and then they never really turn into failure. Sure. I think just on that point, <clears throat> it's sometimes easier for leadership to acknowledge mistakes. Having your team and your employees and your salespeople acknowledge mistakes is a bit of a more challenging Thing just because you know it's natural to be afraid or I didn't do it or, or pass the buck. So having a culture where you know you have that, it's great. It's okay you made a mistake because you have to learn and build from that mistake. Um, it's funny. It seems like there's a theme when it comes to mistakes. I, by the way, I make a million mistakes a day, right? So there's not one big mistake that I think I've made that's you know put my company in jeopardy and add an extra zero to one of our one of our payments or something like that. But um, probably in terms of I think hiring is. Is, is a big theme here. And one of the traps that we fell into, especially you know, in, in the liquor segment, is um, we, as you grow, one of the temptations is to hire a big, uh, you know, an executive, somebody with clout, right. sales experience, a Rolodex you can use and say, we're gonna, he's going to take us from here up to here overnight. And in the past, we put that first and we put culture second. And we said, you know what? It's fine, and we've done. You know, we will hire the same mistake. Hire him, hire her. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll gain all the benefits from all their connections. People will say, "Wow, they, they got you know they got this person," and we'll adapt them to trauma afterwards. My thing. Uh, that that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Thankfully, we've corrected that. Now we've hired a you know we've hired a veteran who we put culture first and, and, and sales second. But um, re- education is a lot easier than re-education. Because you're hiring folks that have 5, 10, 15 years experience that have done it a very different way than Trumba. And trying to tell them, hey, no, no, you can't do it that way anymore. you got to do it this way. They're going to say, well, hold on. I built my career doing it this way. I'm not going to change. You guys have to adapt to me. So putting culture second and sales first, never a good idea. And one of the actually some of the best people we've had at Trumba have been outsiders have been people that have had no experience or very little experience within the segment and they've been able to mold we've been able to mold them they've adapted to our culture um, and they've been some of our absolute top employees think um, 
another thing that, that we've learned along the way is, and we've touched upon it before, is, is that cultural aspect. You know, I started to try, try to treat our Mexican um, production facility. We have, we have 10 employees down in Mexico. We have our own office down there. I tried to try to do business uh, down in Mexico like I did in Canada. And that caused a lot of pain, both on our, on our operational standpoint, but also from my, you know, from my mental health standpoint as well. <laughs> because it's a different culture, it's a different set of, of values, it's a different, you know, just different way to do business. And again, they're not going to adapt to me. I have to adapt to them. Um, I also, another, another thing as well, which is, you know, correcting your, your mistakes, not repeating the same mistakes, important, but also sometimes um, the past is a bit of a shell. So sometimes uh, don't just take a formula that worked and copy and paste it. Um, you know, there's no, there's no uh, sacred cows, in, in, I find, in the business world. And we've tried to, you know, we tried to effectively take a formula that worked in, in Toronto and New York and Miami and tried to put into Los Angeles and kind of ignoring uh, some of the outside stuff that was going on, and it didn't work because we said, oh, worked here, worked here, worked here, um, and therefore uh, it's going to work in another market. And it didn't, just because we were much too copy and paste. So I think that repeating your successes sometimes can be as dangerous as not correcting your mistakes. Yeah, cool. Uh, mentioned the Quantum Ship Program. Debbie was a part of it. We have a couple other folks in the room, uh, part of that program. Uh, we do a survey every year, and every year, you know, the number one issue keeping uh, entrepreneurs up at night of these high-growth companies is talent. You know, people and talent. And, it doesn't uh, change. We, yeah, we've heard it, heard it from all of our panelists, and finding the right people... Uh, that fit with the culture and, and have the capabilities uh, to continue to move the company forward is, is so, so critical. All right, uh, probably one more question for me, and then we'll open it up to the audience, so uh, be thinking. Uh, you know, if you were to give advice to the group, you know, kind of a, a really key learning that you'd like to pass on, what, what might that be? Well, firstly, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the questions. Uh, I enjoy uncomfortable questions. You know, I, I really uh, I try to spend as many hours of my day uncomfortable as possible, right? So I kind of wake up uncomfortable and then I go to bed uncomfortable, right? So I wake up in the morning and I play tennis in an uncomfortable fashion, and then I go to the office and I'm uncomfortable, and then I come home and my girls make me uncomfortable. So, so I'm really looking forward to some uncomfortable questions. Um, Do you play tennis hopping on one foot or something? <laughs> well, I play people better than me. You know, and uh, you know, try to figure out different ways to, to win. Anyways, um, so the uh, question is about... Uh, Just, if you were to but, pass on one thing to the group that you think is a key... Yeah, I think it's important to understand that as the business evolves, you know, you, it's that, uh, you know, the whole concept of resetting strategy, right, is I think the days of having a PowerPoint and having a business plan and then, you know, following the business plan is those days... You know, I don't think that's the way to run a business. I think that one needs to constantly be resetting strategy. And, you know, for us, for an example of how we reset strategy, over 10 years ago, we were like, uh, content is king. And these are all the benefits to owning our own content. And that's when we created an entertainment division. We're an entertainment company, right? As much as we are a toy company. It's both. So um, entrepreneurs, they get, they get too... They get too uh, married to the whole, you know, this is the strategy, we've got to stick to the strategy. To me is, 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 you know, one of the themes today is entrepreneurs need to be on the front line, right? That's what separates. If you, if you look at the last 20 years, at the, 
Um, founder-led companies outproduce companies without the founders on average. Those are the statistics are being published by Bain, McKinsey, all of them. And there are three reasons why um, founder-led companies, um, and one of them is being on the front line, right, and getting all that information from customers, from the marketplace, from employees and everyone, and resetting strategy based on how the marketplace is, ch is changing. So that's one really big uh, point. And I think the other thing is, is that the larger the company goes, it goes back to talent. And when you talk about talent, it all starts with yourself, right? How you show up. I'm still working on, you know, like for example, I've small, you know, uh, I'm working on how can I become a little bit more structured in the business? Because now the company requires me to show up differently. Like when I stand, when I walk into a meeting at Spinmaster today versus 10 years ago, I have to be a different person. And it's tiring because that's not my natural reptilian response, my DNA. That's not who I am. But I need to, as a leader of the organization, I have to show up differently, right? So, um, so much in business comes down to mindset. The underpinning of mindset, okay, is psychology, anxiety, insecurity, ego, right? And what people need to do is they need to put truth on the table, have radical transparency, and people need to talk about where are your pressure points when it comes to anxiety, ego, insecurity, self-awareness, mindset, right? Because, um, you, you know, if you do the five whys and you keep going to the root cause, you're just going to you keep going down layer by layer, you're going to eventually hit people. And when you hit people, you're going to get into mindset. And how open is the person? Does the person have a fixed mindset or an open mindset? I mean, there's, great, there's a basic book from Carol Dweck called Mindset. It's just the most basic book ever. And it talks about the difference between a fixed mindset and an open mindset, right? And that applies to everything in life. It applies to parenting, it applies to politics, it applies to business, it applies to yourself, it applies to playing tennis, whatever you're doing, right? So, um, so I think that that's, you know, I think that as leaders, you need to get comfortable understanding psychology. You need to get comfortable um, talking about uncomfortable topics, which is, you know, people's psychological profile, right? And, and again, you know, I keep, you know... We'll, we'll see if they come with an uncomfortable Okay. Question. <laughs> Debbie, how about you? So just to rephrase, I, I love listening to Antoine, but just want to make sure I'm on, on track with the question. Just, just one, one, one thing. One key piece of advice okay. I want to share. Um, I'm in the health and wellness industry. I think for us, uh, more than profit, more than growth is really happiness. Um, and happiness in the sense that I think um, you can only achieve that by having work-life balance. Um, even if your business don't last, your family lasts. Um, for me, I have two young kids, and I think, you know, how do we make that happen? Um, for me, it's really achieving that, making sure that um, at Yoga Tree, all my staff, we echo the same thing. Most of them are millennials. You don't have to put in the most hours at work. That's not how we measure success. But you do have to make sure you achieve great results. Um, we use a lot of tools to make sure that um, work-life balance uh, is achieved at Yoga Tree by having technology, home-based, Trello. We use collaboration like Slack. We use feedback like Hire Frederick. But I think the most important thing is um, if you're happy at work, if you're able to have that flexibility, you're able to carve out you know, meaningful life beyond just working um, at your studio or taking classes, I think for us uh, that's longevity. How do you make a business sustainable?
Sure. Sweet. Happiness, it comes down to toys, yoga, and toys, tequila. Toys, yoga, and tequila. Those are wow. three yeah, perfect combo. We should take this on the road. We should, we should, we should package and do a partnership. <laughs> Eric, how about you? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I think, uh, I think kind of how we started the company was effectively uh, ingrained a culture of us, ingrained a culture with us to be successful. If we didn't start this way, probably wouldn't have been. And by that, mean, by that, you know, when we started the brand with effectively, you know, ten thousand dollars in a story, uh, where no institutions would give us a, a nickel, and you know, today it's very, very, very different environments. But back in those days, they they would they literally locked us out of the room. And so what that did to us, I remember our first business plan that we gave out to an industry expert. It came back with more uh, red ink on it than black ink. And the words, impossible, can't be done unless you have a million dollars per market or something, something like that. And so we had to look at it and take a effectively, the only way for us to succeed would take an unconventional approach to building this brand. Because if we went toe-to-toe with uh, you know, one of the big boys, even if we had $2 million, $3 million, we would have died a pretty quick death. And one of the things that we did, which was, you know, we didn't do it, really super consciously, but, but we, look at, we looked at the strengths and weaknesses of our, of our competitors because the only way to do this is to effectively take market share from them. The tequila market was growing, but it certainly wasn't growing enough for us to effectively build a really strong brand on something like this. And so we looked at, okay, where are they strong and where are they weak, and how do we effectively attack their, their weaknesses with our strengths? And so if you look at the bigger players, um, you know, the they have, they're, they're very big. They have a ton of money. Um, they have huge distribution for a huge distribution force, and they have a lot of relationships embedded within the industry. Seems like a fun competitor to go against, right? <laughs> um, but where are they weak? Uh, they, you know, they're 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 big. They're, their infrastructure is rigid. They're slow. They're very short-term oriented and very payback focused. So they're not brand builders. They're trend. They're they're transactional based. So as an example, you know, doing this was beyond belief helpful for us because when they go to a bar and restaurant, they would beeline for the general manager or the purchasing director um, or the owner, someone who's going to make the decision where they say, I will give you this much money marketing support, you give me this many cases, job's done, I go to my boss and say, look what I've done. They haven't done anything to build their brand. They've made a transaction. We would do the opposite. We would beeline to the bartender and we would tell the bartender our story. And they would, they would say this is... You guys are ridiculous. The bartender, most of the times, has no decision-making power. They, you know, you could be wasting your time. They could quit tomorrow. But what we did was we ingrained that story, bartender by bartender, bar by bar. And instead of looking for payback, we built the foundation of a brand. And we attacked kind of the Achilles heel again and again of our of our competitors doing this. And we achieved, you know, effectively you could, it, by doing this, you can take down Goliath with with a slingshot almost. Um, the trickier thing as well is that, you know, it embedded that ROI-based culture on us, which is a bit easier when you have no money. But when you start to have a lot of, like, a lot more money, um, nothing on the scale of the big big boy levels, but to maintain that culture and maintain that payback. And when you hire more people, you get far and further and further removed. And when they come from different organizations you're used to spending, to maintain that ROI-based culture um, and analyze kind of, the major transactions you're making, does this add value? Is this building the brand? Is this helping us achieve our object- objective? Is something that I think has been really successful with Toronto. Cool. 
Cool. You guys, thanks so much. Let's uh, let's turn it to the audience, and uh, we have time for a couple of questions. Uh, I think we have microphones floating around. So, uh, Roger. Uh, thanks very much. I thought that was great. Uh, question for you, Eric. Just uh, following up on what you just said, how do you scale if your staff are like they're you're always trying to approach bartenders and serving staff? And if you go into a new market, are you working with partners? And how do you how do you uh, incent them to do the same take the same approach? It's uh, it, you know, it's it's a really good question, and um, you you scale you scale s s a lot more slowly than a lot of the big boys would want to scale. So it effectively is you know hand to hand combat, bar by bar, bottle by bottle. And our strategy, you know, the conventional wisdom is you need to go and do a distribution drive and be in 500 accounts, and 500 accounts maybe you'll sell a case or two cases. Our strategy is very different. Our strategy is we need to be in 50 accounts, and from those 50 accounts, we're going to sell 10 cases per those accounts. We're going to service hell of them. They're going to all know our story, and it builds and it builds and it builds, and that word of mouth spreads between one bar to another bar, hospitality to other hospitality, and there's a tipping point where it actually becomes infectious. And then you walk into a bar that you've never heard of, and the person beside you is ordering trauma, and you're like, oh, that, that's awesome. So I'm a big believer of, of scaling in that sense, slow, but building that very, very strong brand foundation because when the big boys do take notice of you, and they will, they'll try to disrupt it to throw cash at the bar or incentivize them to pour their product. And the bartender, you've, you've already decommoditized your brand. So they're pouring it not because it's the cheapest. I mean, you know, we're on some house pours, for example, in New York and Miami where a bar could pay one-third the cost of a tequila that they, they pay for us. And so it's that, that's into, you know, these are high volume bars. That's you know, tens upon tens of thousands of dollars a year. But they do it because they love the brand, they love the value proposition, they have that relationship. So it embeds that rock solid, uh, rock solid foundation. Cool. Over here. That's a good question. Um, so again, you know, going back to what you're saying, we do have five very different geographic locations. Um, what we do weekly, we actually meet with our management team and we actually give them the support that they need. It is kind of like a breakout session where we review um, using, we have a tool on the back end called Hive Frederick. Um, so before, social media is huge for us, but also feedback is huge for us. So what we have is we have a step in between where we drive feedback uh, internally before it gets out to, to, to the public. Um, and that step is actually very critical for us because anyone who's unsatisfied, anyone who has a concern or something that really triggers that culture unfit, we probably would notice it in, in, that, in that zone before it hits out to the public or it hits out to something and becomes blown full scale. Um, every week we meet with our managers, but we also meet with the frontline yoga advisors and also instructors where we kind of brainstorm to see, you know, if there's something that's not right, something that you guys need support on, what can we do to support each other? Uh, we may not find the answer, for example, at Richmond's Medina, um, but we pick on the team at <coughs> Bay and Dundas to see if they can offer a hand of support. Um, 
it becomes harder, I find, especially when you know our brand at one time was experiencing a lot of rapid growth back in uh, early 2012 to 2013 when we were opening one store pretty much a year and a half. Um, that was hard for us in a sense that we didn't have that connection and we lost it at that time. Um, and, and we really took the time to, in 2015 to really make sure that we hone in on that to make sure that even if we don't have the resources and human resources, what technology can we leverage to make sure that we have the support? So yes, we cannot call everybody over the phone to ask them, hey, how was your class? Or um, you know, how, would you come back to Yoga Tree? But we can use other tools to help us with that, to, to identify some of the weakness that we have and kind of stone us back in and, and reflect that in weekly meetings. Fun, fun fact, we have uh, 20, 2016 when Debbie was with us, uh, she mentioned social media. Uh, we Quantum Shift, it's 40 high growth entrepreneurs that are well past startup and we have a session that's hear me out, help me out. And everybody asked Debbie, Debbie, please tell us what this whole social media thing is all about. No. <laughs> and, and we're learning as well. Um, we recently hired um, a PR agency. Um, what we did well in the past in social media has probably changed and I think we need to stay relevant. We actually have the same PR, myself and Eric, uh, Blue Door. Uh, there's no payment here, but I love them. Um, blue but Door? Blue, blue, I know, Blue Door. But, <laughs> but I find that you know, uh, we do stories, we, we, we spread ourselves across three uh, platforms, uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we recently tapped on uh, a new platform called WeChat. Uh, WeChat is to make sure that we stay relevant in, in our, as I mentioned to you, one of the core values diversity. WeChat is one of the fastest growing platform on social media uh, in the Asian segment. So reflecting in the demographic and, and people who come into Yoga Tree, we're now on four platforms. Um, but social media is ever evolving. I mean, what we learned in the past in 2016 was Hootsuite, right? Who uses Hootsuite now? They use other technology. So um, that's a channel that we're ever learning and ever exploring. But well, everybody still lots, talks lots about to, the seminar you gave. So. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. A lot to learn. Good question here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, good morning. Uh, Marty Mike with uh, We wholesaled it for three dollars and fifteen cents, you know, and our margins were really, really. And you were the labor. You know, and <laughs> so we uh, we were, you know, very profitable out of the gate. Uh, one of the one of the things that we did do is we used a relationship, uh, Sam Kotzer, Samco Sales, who paid a COD. So in, t in order to ship Walmart, we we sh we uh, sent the product to Samco Sales. They paid a COD. And then they shipped it to Walmart in the early, early, in the beginning days. So, um, 
you know, I, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm the best person to answer that question because we were so profitable early early on. Um, I'm in retail. It's a slow growth, uh, but it's sustainable. Um, if you do things right, again, making sure that uh, we negotiate hard, actually, in all our leases. Because there's two things, as I mentioned to you, that we need to do well. Number one, we need to make sure we control payroll. Number two, we need to control rent. If we get those, those two things right, then you'll be a sustainable and profitable business. Um, we've been approached early stage on uh, by local companies to do mergers and acquisition. Uh, later on, uh, as we get more on, on lists like uh, Growth 500, uh, one of the fastest growing companies, uh, we got traction and, and, and people coming from the states for us. Um, right now, Yoga Tree, 12 years in, uh, we're still uh, privately owned by myself and Jason. There's no minority partner, franchise, or anyone else. Um, there's still a long way for us to grow. Um, I find that you know uh, we're not at the scale at doing a, uh, to be quite frank with you to do to do a merger or to do acquisition. I think there's a lot of work we need to do, and this is a five-year process. This could be a ten-year process. I don't know, and I think we have to recognize that um, you know there are times where you might get excited, you might get these calls, it might keep you motivated, and they'll continue to be motivated. But you also have to recognize where you are, and is it the right time for you to exit? Is it the right time for you to do M and A? Um, and we are recognized um, at the stage, this is not the right time. There's a lot of work we need to do. So, well, the, <clears throat> Certainly the market in the craft spirits slash tequila space has changed quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, some of the calls I get now are guys that would have returned my emails back in 2012. Um, but we, to answer your question, we, we swam very close to shore. Uh, we didn't exceed our means because it's such a capital-intensive industry and you can waste so much money so quickly by doing things that don't necessarily generate anything for the business, but I guess stimulate stimulate your ego and say, kind of, look, look where I am. Actually, my, my ex-boss in finance, she asked me what the biggest destroyer of value is. And when I was, you know, when I was a senior analyst, I would say, I, or what was, the, what, was the number reason, what was the number one reason why companies failed? And I would say, I don't know. Cash flow, say no. Profits, no. Ego, right? So, you know, I remember turning down a distribution offer. We started, we started first in Canada and Australia. We wanted to succeed in our backyards before we moved to the U.S. And I remember turning down a distribution offer, I think it was in 2015 or 16, to, for New York State from a really good distributor because we weren't ready. I mean, and he said to me, I've never had anybody turn down a distribution offer from us before because it was, it was insane. But we weren't ready to go. So... For us, it was about, again, growing slow but growing smart, staying close to shore and not overextending. I also took no salary for two years personally. Um, I took zero salary for more, like, many years. Yeah. I yeah. don't know how many years. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, that's... <laughs> hopefully you're going to pay now. Yeah. It's made up for it. <laughs> you're making up for it. But if you're not prepared to sacrifice both on, on a personal level, then, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot more difficult to generate that, uh, that culture within the organization. Uh, in the back here. Yeah, this one's for Anton. You're looking a little too comfortable, right? <laughs> 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 I love that you talked about um, self-awareness for leaders. It's so important. What's the toughest feedback that you got that you were able to turn around and do something with? Well, my toughest feedback came uh, right when I started, when I did a 360 and my listening skills were 5.8 out of 10. I was uh, 20, like tw around 22, 23 years old. And um, 
and I'm still working on my listening skills. They're about a 7.7 7. 7 now, depending on the day. <laughs> We're moving in the right direction. Exactly. No, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, listen, I, I get so much feedback every day, it's, it's exhausting. But uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would say my listening skills, right? And, um, listen, entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs have some form of ADHD, right? But they don't talk about it, right? I, didn't, I was never diagnosed with ADHD, but um, it's quite common. And first of all, ADHD is just such a silly label because it's such a spectrum, right? And I've never been officially uh, diagnosed by anything, but, you know, I'm sure I'm somewhere on the spectrum. <laughs> no comment. So, so I think that, uh, you know, you spike high, spike low, cause and effect, right? As an entrepreneur, there's things that make you great, right? Like my energy and my pace setting, you know, and um, my tenacity. Like there's certain things that, that have been so, so instrumental in the company's success. But at this size, you know, I need to show up differently. Right, so it's just constantly rechecking in with, you know, you know, where are you in the evolution of the company, and how do you need to show up differently? And on that one, I got to jump. You know, Eric, did we cover everything? I think so. One more question. I yeah. Think we'll, uh, it was uncomfortable enough. You got it. <laughs> I gotta get Last back. To, I gotta get back to the office. Can anybody hear me? Okay, great. We're, uh, we're still running the business day to day. So I guess my question is. Uh, What's your kind of, I guess, similar to that? What's your greatest weakness? Your greatest weakness, and how did you solve it, or how do you intend to solve it, rather? Well, maybe we'll and, uh, push over here. The two parts of that is uh, 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 do you, have you guys ever felt that you plateaued, and how did you solve that? Listen, my uh, I think firstly, my whole my whole view is is spend your time not working on your weaknesses. Like, who wants to die with strong weaknesses? Right, that's like, like my whole life is figure out what your unique ability is and surround yourself with people to cover on your weaknesses. Right, like, uh, so everyone should, people should spend most of your day, 80, 90% of your day in your unique ability and what makes you great. And, and what's the one thing that you do better than other people and then just hire people around you to cover on your weaknesses. <coughs> Right, and um, if you're able to do that, then you, you know uh, it will help you grow faster. Cool. So that's just my overall. Anyways, good to see leave, you guys. Use the mic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can hear what's going on sorry, in Spin Masters. Yeah, nice yeah we could point out some insider trading. Good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Take let's care. go back to the the first part of that sorry, question, yes. and we'll we'll leave it with Debbie and Eric, and then we'll wrap up after that. Anton, thanks so much. All right, uh, Debbie, you want to t- tackle Greatest that a little bit? Greatest weakness, right? Yeah. Um, doing too much. Um, as a woman entrepreneur, as a mom, uh, as a mentor, as, as a leader, but also as a janitor at work, you know, you're, you're doing a lot. And I think, you know, saying no is really hard in general. Um, but you've got to recognize there's a tipping point, there's a breaking point where you take on so much and it no longer functions at the 100% capacity that you want it to be. Um, and it took us a while, especially in the early days, because, um, yes, you want to delegate, but cash flow is also an issue. Um, resources, having the network was also an issue. And you always don't have that choice to delegate. You don't always have the choice to recognize a weakness and address it. Um, and I think that took time. It might not happen today. 
It might not happen because of the circumstances you're in. It might not happen because of the stage of the growth you're in. But um, we, we took time to address that. And slowly and slowly, I start delegating. I start letting go. Um, and now, as I mentioned to Eric, I'm very excited. What keeps me up at night is not work. It's not cash flow. It's about, you know, what am I going to do for school counseling tomorrow, sending pizza lunch to my kids. So there's different things and, and recognizing that um, it's a slow process to, to, to fix that. But it's something that you, you might have it on your agenda and to re, revisit that every year. It, it's a great point, yeah. Debbie. It's, it's another uh, answer to the questions earlier is that when, when you become the choke point, you can no longer scale. And you have to mm-hmm. understand when you become that choke point in your business and, and start to delegate more effectively. Eric, what do you think? Uh, it's a great question. I think um, one of the weaknesses that still plenty of weaknesses, but something that, that I've recognized and I've tried to correct uh, is uh, having kind of a fluid mindset. So taking taking a cue from my from my children where they get upset about something and then 35 seconds later they're on they're on to the next thing. It's you know, it's, it's 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 funny but it's really important because you don't get bogged down in the past you don't get bogged down with with old issues. You said okay that happened I've addressed it the best I can and moving forward. Cool. I, I want to uh, thank the panel uh, for for coming in and thank, and, you. thank you and Debbie and Eric. Thanks so much. Thank You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.